the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, May 10th, 2002. I'm Sally Helm. Robert Hansen, wearing a dull green prison uniform, steps up to the microphone. He looks pale and hollow-eyed. He twists his hands behind his back. He knows that a lot of his former colleagues are in the courtroom today and that he has betrayed them. Hansen served in the FBI for 25 years. For 22 of them, off and on, he was handing secrets to the Soviets. In return, they gave him more than a million dollars in cash and diamonds. But Hansen got caught. Months before Hansen steps up to the microphone in this courtroom, he pleaded guilty to 15 counts of espionage and conspiracy. There was talk of the death sentence. After all, he was one of the most damaging spies in U.S. history. But he's cooperated to an extent. And so instead, he's sentenced on this day in May to life in prison. Hansen has the chance to make a statement. I apologize for my behavior, he says. I am shamed by it. He apologizes in particular to his wife and his six children, who are not in the courtroom. He says, I have hurt so many so deeply. The prosecution is blunt. U.S. Attorney Paul McNulty says, Robert Hansen was trained to catch spies. He was an expert at what it took to avoid being caught. And he was caught. And he was punished. Today, the sordid tale of Robert Hansen. How did he manage to steal state secrets for 22 years from inside the FBI? Was he a criminal mastermind or just a guy with incredible luck? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Washington, D.C., 2001. A bombshell announcement from the FBI. They've caught a spy in their own ranks, Robert Hansen. Journalists scramble to cover the story. One of them is veteran reporter Elaine Shannon, who had covered the FBI for 25 years. We all went, wow, this is big stuff, because there had been some security problems at the FBI, but nothing like this. Shannon starts calling her sources, asking about Hansen. And she reads his own words in the letters he sent to his handlers at the KGB, the Soviet Intelligence Service. These were flowery and they were needy and like love letters. 
there's the sense of this on-again, off-again romance. At one point, when his handlers get in touch, Hansen writes, It brought me great joy to see the signal at last. At a moment when they seem to have abandoned him, he pleads, At least say goodbye. It's been a long time, my dear friends. A long and lonely time. This reads like a guy who wants a lover or has a lover and is trying to make up with a lover. This does not read like a guy doing a business transaction. Shannon can tell there's a complex story here with a mysterious figure at its center. She wants to understand Hansen's motives. Why he undermined his country even when he knew that it would get people killed. That won't be easy. I don't think anybody still understands Robert Hansen to this day, including Robert Hansen. But Shannon tries. He had a rather harsh relationship with his father. Hansen's father, Howard, wants to toughen Robert up. Over time, that translates to physical and emotional abuse. Howard berates his young son constantly. When Robert is about six or seven, for reasons unknown, his father wraps him in blankets and spins him around until he throws up. So Robert turns to a different male role model. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. As a kid growing up in Chicago, Hansen obsesses over 007. He sits wrapped in dark theaters, watching a suave Sean Connery outwit and outpunch his enemies. It's Hansen's dream life, but it's not his father's dream for him. His father wanted him not to be in law enforcement. He wanted him to be a doctor or some other white coat professional. Even though Howard Hansen was a police officer himself. And Robert does try to get that white coat. He goes to dental school, but quits before he's finished and becomes an accountant instead. It's detail-oriented, and he's good at that, but he finds it boring. And then, in 1976... He got hooked into the FBI. The FBI. They were looking for accountants, lawyers, other professionals. And Hansen thinks, perfect. This is my way to get the James Bond life. Dangerous situations, romantic locations, top-secret documents. And his resume gets him in the door. He looked good on paper. 31, male, college-educated, a devout Catholic who's married with three kids. To the FBI in 1976, that looks like a model agent. So he lands the job. But when he actually starts work, it's clear the resume didn't tell the whole story. He was not good in person. He just put people off. He was very stiff. He was not engaging. For an FBI agent, that's not good. You have to recruit informants, question witnesses. That requires someone persuasive and congenial. But Hansen is abrasive. He's pretty much destined for a desk job. That's where undercover operative Eric O'Neill comes across him at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. He said Hansen made a strong first impression. He was imposing, six foot two or three. He sort of leaned forward in a bit of a hunch. He could smile, but he was more likely to glare. 
He walked with an odd limp to his right side, and he had a very sharp tongue. If you did something wrong or you made a mistake, he would lash out right away. Again, not good. So Hansen gets a new assignment. Well, he quickly got put on a counterintelligence squad. His bosses put him there because he wasn't very good with people, but counterintelligence, a lot of it is just following people silently. So here's Hansen, stuck behind a monitor, tracking suspects from afar. Not a glamorous guy on a beach with a girl, just a cog in the FBI machine. And yet, he does now have access to highly classified U.S. intelligence. They put him in a room by himself with a computer so he could look up stuff. This was golden for a spy. He's good with computers, but at the time, that's not a highly respected skill within the FBI. Hansen thinks, I'm smarter than these guys, better than them. And eventually, he decides to use his skills not as an FBI agent, but as a double agent, a spy for the other guys. In 1979, he makes his move. His first act of espionage was to walk into a front for Russian military intelligence. It's called the GRU. Hansen just waltzes into a GRU front in Manhattan. He sits down with America's Cold War enemy, its rival, and offers them his services as a spy. Elaine Shannon says, the Soviets do not rejoice at this visit. Instead, they are immediately suspicious. Here's this guy with this short haircut and this cheap dark suit and this white shirt, and he's offering information. Well, they thought he was a plant. You would too. I would too. And so they kind of blew him off. They send Hansen away. He's kind of down about it, but he is not ready to give up. He starts writing letters to the GRU and the KGB, flattering them and pleading for their attention. Eventually, he makes a bold proposal. He just offered them information about three of the most important double agents the FBI and CIA had ever developed. Bombshell information about people on the Soviet side who are spying for the Americans. The Soviets would trade money and even lives to know this kind of information. But Hansen doesn't ask for much. He didn't bargain. He didn't say, I've got this really great stuff. What are you going to pay me for it? No, that's not enough. No, this is really golden stuff. You've got to pay me a lot more. He didn't do any of that. The Soviets are still not sure if they can trust this guy. So they take the list of names and file it away. It sits there collecting dust until the mid-1980s, when another American double agent hands them the same names. CIA operative Aldrich Ames is also spying for the Soviets. He doesn't know anything about Hansen. And with this confirmation, the Soviets take brutal action. They recall their double agents to the USSR, interrogate them, and execute them. These are the rules of the game, so to speak. 
Shannon says it's virtually certain Hansen knew that these people he betrayed would wind up dead. He killed or tried to kill his first time out. That tells me, if I make an assumption, he wanted to strike out at the world. He wanted to strike out at colleagues, at bosses. He was a very angry man. After this, Robert Hansen is on the Soviet payroll. He's going to start handing over more information. But of course, he has to be careful. Hansen never meets with his KGB handlers face-to-face, and he takes on a new persona. He used a phony name called Ramon Garcia in dealing with the KGB. Now, that's a romantic spy novel kind of name, or I guess he thought it was. Hansen has finally hit his version of the big time. He is officially a spy. But it seems like he's still not satisfied. This is a lonely, needy man. He's searching for something, but he had all these children. He had a beautiful wife. So what is his problem? For one thing, Hansen had more than one double life. Elaine Shannon says that this married, apparently devout, church-going man was also spending a lot of time at strip clubs and even taking a stripper he met there on a trip to Hong Kong. They had an ongoing relationship. Hanson gave her an American Express card to keep up this Mercedes he bought her and then got furious at her and withdrew it when she bought a couple of little Easter dresses for her nieces. Hansen also posted explicit stories about his wife on internet bulletin boards. A friend of Hansen's even claims the spy also took intimate videos without her knowledge and showed him these videos. I know it's distasteful, but this is where Hansen was when he wasn't spying. This phase of Hansen spying lasts for about 10 years. He gets very good at swiping classified information and passing it on to the Soviets through dead drops. On his KGB handler's instructions, Hansen would leave a signal at a prearranged spot, like a white thumbtack on a utility pole, communicating that he was ready to make a drop. Then Hansen would print out the documents. Or he would use a disc, and he'd wrap those in ordinary black plastic garbage bag and take it to a park. He'd leave the black bag at the appointed spot, then stick a piece of white tape on a nearby sign, his signal that he was ready for payment. And then they would leave money in the dead drops later. Hansen likes how easy it is to fool his colleagues at the Bureau. The deception all runs smoothly, until... Our top story, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev has been removed from power, and there are tanks now in the streets of Moscow. The Soviet Union falls in 1991. The country that employs Hansen as a spy, that country no longer exists. Hansen knows that this could be dangerous for him. He wonders, will Ramon Garcia get caught in the geopolitical fallout? So Hansen lays low. No more spying for a time. But then something happens. In 1994, the FBI arrests that other double agent, Aldrich Ames. 
they start to take stock of all the secrets that he's shared with the Soviets. The FBI and CIA started to realize there was somebody else because there were things that the Russians clearly had. They knew that Ames could not have known and could not have given up. They realize there must be two moles in their midst. So now the FBI and the CIA create a joint team to smoke out this second mole. Bad news for Hansen. But undercover operative Eric O'Neill says the Bureau had a blind spot. The FBI had this bias to always assume it can't be us. We're the good guys. We wear the white hats. We're the cowboys. We're not the bad guys. So they look down the road at the other guys. The guys robbing the stagecoach, that's the CIA. Anytime there's a mole, it's got to be in there. The FBI assumes they are looking for a turncoat CIA agent. They start to hunt for him by analyzing who had access to leaked information, a motive, opportunity, and means. Elaine Shannon says they soon identify a suspect, a CIA agent named Brian Kelly. Obviously, he's the wrong guy, but they think he looks like the right guy. He lived near where some dead drops were that they knew about. He had a lot of similarities, the kind of person they were looking for, and they investigated him, made his life miserable, interviewed his aged mother, interviewed his children. Ultimately, that was all a false lead. Is Hansen following it? Does he know that that's happening? Yes, he was watching the Brian Kelly investigation and probably very happy about it. As Hansen watches Kelly's life fall apart, He's like, phew, I'm safe. And maybe could I get away with spying again? He got back into communication with the now Russians. After 20 years of espionage, Robert Hansen feels unstoppable. Why shouldn't he? By all appearances, he's a respectable member of his community with a nice new job at the State Department where there is a whole new set of secrets to be ransacked. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Washington, D.C., the year 2000. The FBI has a new head of counterintelligence operations, 
His name is Neil Gallagher, and he thinks the mole team needs to move beyond analysis. That's according to Elaine Shannon. He had a different philosophy. He comes from the criminal investigations, and he said, we cannot analyze our way out of this. Somebody knows. Whenever you have a crime, somebody knows something. You just have to keep talking to people. Talk, talk, talk. People, people, people. Find the person who knows. Gallagher tells his investigators, go look for anyone who worked for the KGB in the 1980s. They might have interacted with this mole. There were a lot of former KGB people who were out in the wind. They were in business. They were consulting. They were mercenaries. Investigators tracked down an ex-KGB officer who had once worked in Washington, D.C. He has information that they want. But it comes at a steep price. Seven million dollars and safe haven in the U.S. The government makes the deal. And the guy starts talking. The Russian said... Yeah, I dealt with someone who was giving us information. I don't have the person's name. Never saw him, but there's a file in the old KGB headquarters. I think I can get it. The Russian, his name is still classified, goes to Moscow in late 2000 to the former KGB headquarters in Lubyanka Square. This is a top secret mission whose details to this day have not been released. But the gist of it is... He walks into this massive building with its ornate facade, and he walks out with the goods. The Russian stays in Moscow a little longer, but he passes the documents along to the CIA, who then forward them to Washington. The Russian who got this stuff left instructions. There were five or six big manila envelopes, and one of them said, do not open this until I get back to the U.S. Can explain what's in it, don't touch it. The FBI sets that folder aside, but opens the rest. There's all these writings from Ramon Garcia, these weird, squirrely writings. Letters from Hansen to his handlers that got stranger over time. They seem to portray his spiraling mental state. One might propose that I am either insanely brave or quite insane, he writes. I'd answer neither. I'd say insanely loyal. Take your pick. There is insanity in all the answers. And there's something else in the files, too. There's a snippet of tape with a man's voice on it where the person had called the embassy, I guess, to set up a meet. When FBI analysts hear the recording, some of them are like, I think that's Robert Hansen. The letters also contain some peculiar vocabulary and stylistic quirks. Again, things these agents have heard from their colleague, Robert Hansen. It's still just a suspicion, but it's enough to get Hansen placed under surveillance. And the FBI takes some precautionary measures. The boss of the counterintelligence division said, well, we got to get Hansen away from our computer system. They secretly build Hansen a fake computer system. It looks identical to the regular database, but doesn't have any legitimate top-secret files. The computer also lets the FBI remotely track Hansen's online activity. And they tell him, you've gotten a promotion. Come back to FBI headquarters. This move will make it easier for them to watch him. 
And so will the assistant they've assigned to work with Hansen. An assistant who is actually undercover operative Eric O'Neill. He says, Hansen was kind of abrasive right from the beginning. That first day, he comes into the office, kind of looks at me, goes into his office without saying a word. So the surveillance is set. And then the Russian who's working for the FBI returns to D.C. And investigators open the final envelope. Inside are the tattered remnants of a black trash bag. The Russian says, well, I saved this. This was around a dead drop. That went straight to fingerprinting. And they pulled up Henson's prints off of it. So is that enough? Do they have him now? Or do they need more? They need more. They need to catch him in the act, preferably with a tape recorder and cameras and a lot of witnesses and show that to a jury because they can't afford a near miss. That means they need to know the time and place of his next dead drop. They have their eye on Foxstone Park near Hanson's home. But it's tough to watch every inch of it every minute of the day. Luckily, Eric O'Neill, working as Hanson's assistant, notices something. He had a Palm Pilot, and he freaking loved that device. It was basically a digital calendar. O'Neill is like, Hanson's a little weird about the Palm Pilot. Every time he sat down at his desk, like clockwork, he would remove it from his back pocket and he would put it in his bag. And every time he stood up, he was already slipping it into his back pocket. Over and over, I watched this routine and I realized there's something special in that device. So they all come up with a plan to get that Palm Pilot. One of Hanson's bosses comes into his office and challenges him to a shooting match at the in-house rifle range. Hansen can't say no to his boss, and the sudden request gets him slightly rattled. I watch them go down the hall and toward the elevators, and I look at his bag, and I realize he didn't reach down for that Palm Pilot for the first time ever. O'Neill grabs the Palm Pilot from Hansen's bag and runs downstairs. Where there's a tech team waiting for me. They start copying all of it. They're still copying it when O'Neill gets a message saying that Hansen is on his way back to his desk. He waits until the last second to grab the Palm Pilot. Then he runs back up three flights of stairs to the office he shares with Hansen. I knelt down in front of his bag and zipped up all four pockets, ran back to my desk and put on the best poker face I've ever had in my life. Mission accomplished. When the tech team unencrypts the Palm Pilot, they find what they've been looking for. A calendar event that says a drop will be made at Foxstone Park on February 18th. On that day, the FBI tails Hansen as he drops a friend at the airport and makes his way to the park. At 4.34 p.m., he gets out of his car and goes through the usual routine. He pulls a package out of his sport coat, wrapped in trash bags and packing tape, slips off the bridge and slides it into the superstructure, gets back on that bridge and clicks his shoes together to knock the dirt off and smiles to himself. But as he leaves the park... Two vans screech to a halt, panel doors open, FBI agents jump out, point their guns at him. He says the guns are not necessary. Hansen is caught red-handed. 
But if he's alarmed, he doesn't show it. He has that telltale handsome smirk and he says, what took you so long? People are stunned by the arrest. Bob Hansen, the weird, quiet, super religious guy? Bob Hansen sold 20 years worth of classified information? The FBI gets to work figuring out the damage. But only Hansen can really give them the full extent of what the Soviets know. So the FBI and the Justice Department make him an offer. If he came clean and told him everything he'd done, then they would take the death penalty off the table, and he agreed to cooperate. In July 2001, Hansen pleads guilty to 15 counts of espionage. He'd handed over not just the names of those agents, but also thousands of pages of classified documents. He'd passed on military secrets and information that allowed the Soviets to thwart major U.S. spy operations, wasting hundreds of millions of tax dollars. Hansen owns up to all that. But it still might not be everything. Hansen developed lapses of memory that they found very disconcerting. And when investigators ask him the central question, why did you do it? He refuses to answer. He just lets them wonder. And the government makes him pay a price. So they didn't give him what he wanted most, which was minimum security prison, chance to visit a lot with his family. Instead, they put him in Supermax. The Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, where he is to this day. He sure took the luster off the FBI. He showed that the FBI's internal security procedures were very lacking, and he embarrassed a proud institution. Elaine Shannon says the FBI has fortified their computer systems and beefed up internal security. They concede that they were naive about their employees' capacity to hurt them, and especially naive about Robert Hansen. They thought he was very faithful to his wife, by the way he wasn't. They thought he was faithful to the Bureau, by the way he wasn't. They just totally misjudged his character. In a way, Hansen's attempt to be James Bond helped diminish that style of espionage altogether. Spies today aren't speeding through the streets of Rome on Vespas. They're not repelling through laser fields. At least, not as often as before. Instead, they're largely following the Hansen model, sitting, watching, and waiting to exploit a weakness, all from behind a screen. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to hear more about CIA spy Aldrich Ames, you can listen to our season one episode, A Mole in the CIA. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guests, Elaine Shannon, author of The Spy Next Door, The Extraordinary Secret Life of Robert Philip Hansen the most damaging FBI agent in U.S. history. And Eric O'Neill, national security strategist for VMware Carbon Black, founding partner of Georgetown Group, and author of Gray Day, 
my undercover mission to expose America's first cyber spy. This episode was produced by Corinne Wallace with help from Emma Fredericks. It was sound designed by Brian Flood and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press, Chloe Weiner, and me, Sally Helm. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, a Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.